Welcome to the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. I'm Dr. Chris Tucker from the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center and founding editor. Today, we continue the special series featuring selected articles from our open access online companion journal, Arthroscopy Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation, focusing on the rehabilitation aspects of patient care and orthopedics. Today, we are discussing rehabilitation as it relates to cartilage surgery. I'm honored to be joined for today's episode by Dr. Brian Cole. Dr. Cole is a well-known and respected sports medicine surgeon, associate chairman and professor in orthopedic surgery at Midwest Orthopedics at Rush, past president of the Arthroscopy Association of North America, head team physician for multiple professional teams, including the Chicago Bulls and White Sox, and co-host of his own podcast, Sports Medicine Weekly. Dr. Cole was the senior author on the article titled, Rehabilitation, Restrictions, and Return to Sport After Cartilage Procedures, which was published in the January 2022 issue of ASMAR. Brian, congratulations on all your work and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, and I appreciate you inviting me and for hosting this episode. As we all know, cartilage injury can be debilitating for our patients, and it can be particularly devastating for athletes, as it can cause some symptoms that negatively affect performance or even prevent participation. The management of cartilage injury and the subsequent rehabilitation is obviously quite a large topic, We're going to do our best to try and discuss the major highlights of the various aspects outlined in your article. We've got a lot to unpack here. So before we dive into the finer details, can you give us a brief background on the larger topic of cartilage injury in the athlete and your approach to evaluation and management and how the role of restoration of surgery fits into your overall practice? Yes, I can. So I think the first thing is that um, athletes, and, and, and we have to sort of use that term a little bit uh, broadly because we're speaking about people who are often within a system or if not in a system, they have specific timelines and aspirations. So I think it goes down to the basic tenant of when to treat um, and the considerations that I think are most important in the decision-making uh, conceptually are when an individual has symptoms that are dissatisfying, sufficiently dissatisfying that impair their performance, that's often the need, uh, triggers the need for uh, to treatment. So that's the primary lever. It's important to also understand that treatment could be non-surgical or surgical in most of these patients. There are certain uh, conditions which, by the nature of their pathology, require early treatment, such as large loose bodies that are locking or uh, impending uh, displacement, for example, of an osteochondral lesion. Uh, but uh, suffice to say, the majority of cartilage lesions in all in all comers are somewhat uh, degenerative or longer standing than the uh, timeline that their, that their symptoms have uh, arisen. So conceptually, when we're deciding what to do, whether it's surgical or non-surgical, um, it's, it's important for the for the individual uh, to say, "Look, my level of symptoms are sufficiently dissatisfied that my impairment my impairment is, my my performance is impaired." There are some nuances here. There are athletes who have uh, acute onset symptoms that can still perform at an acceptable level, uh, where we believe that uh, continuing to play, which is often the case, is not going to make the condition worse, and or they're they're sort of fighting for uh, a scholarship or they're fighting for performance assessment as a junior in, in, in high school, for example, to see if scholarship's an option, or they have shorter timelines for contracts and so forth. But those who are sufficiently impaired, whether or not they're, they present as that, that group who can be sort of skillfully neglected or require treatment uh, because of the impairment, are the ones who we often will indicate for surgical intervention. And that's where the topic of this episode, I think, uh, gets initiated, which is uh, the rehab principles and getting an individual back to sport safely without compromising what we've done. 
As we know, there's various cartilage restoration procedures at our disposal to help treat these injured athletes. And as you eloquently highlighted in your paper, counseling them on the likelihood of returning to sport can be challenging for a number of reasons. There's a large number of variables affecting that return to sport, all of which can be quite individualized for each patient. Thus, there's limitations in our ability to estimate both the timing or the ability to return to sport based on the data we have. Could you discuss how you counsel these athletes with a cartilage injury about the prospects of returning to sports and how you set those reasonable expectations while still remaining encouraging and optimistic with them? Yes. When an individual is indicated for, say, cartilage repair or treatment, uh, rather, for their articular cartilage problem, one of the basic tenets is that our ability to render them sufficiently symptom-free, not necessarily an an off switch, but rather like a light rheostat, down down regulating the intensity of their symptoms and sometimes turning it off, allowing them to perform, you know, pain-free or a, a bit pain-less, if you will, is uh, predicated on when their symptoms occur. There are individuals who have no problems with activities of daily living, but only uh, exhibit symptoms when when playing their sport. And while all cartilage procedures in general can yield about a 75% success rate or better with, uh, in terms of satisfaction, uh, meaning sufficient pain relief and accruing performance gains. Uh, that doesn't mean that all procedures yield the same outcome um, or the same duration of uh, sustain or sustainability. It means that when a patient is properly indicated, in my experience, we get about a 75% yield in terms of saying, hey, I'm satisfied. The hardest patient is the one who doesn't have symptoms with ADLs, but only have symptoms with high load situations, such as participating in their sport. And if they didn't participate in their sport, they would be able to say, hey, I'm good. I don't I don't really see this as a problem. So our ability to squeeze out those margins of improvement in that most demanding patient uh, gets a little bit less predictable. So that's the first part of managing expectations. It's easy to, easier to tell a, a higher level individual that, look, I'm pretty confident we'll, when properly indicated, we'll get you the relief you're looking for for things that are sort of pre-high demand sport, but I'm a little less confident if that's your only problem. So we have to make sure that this is an important enough uh, issue for you to engage in treatment. So that's, I think, lays the landscape, if you will, as far as initiating treatment when speaking to a high level uh, individual. And then it's the issue of return to sport, which is about timelines. And does that timeline fit their paradigm in terms of what's acceptable to them and the available time to actually get them back? And then they have to be educated to the extent that, look, in, in some situations with cartilage repair uh, or, quote, restoration, um, there's up to a 30 to 35% reoperation rate for some of these procedures. The good news is if that happens, it's typically an arthroscopic procedure, and uh, it often yields um, a reset that can get them back to play with sufficient pain relief and performance return. I think those are phenomenal tips for counseling. Uh, I find it to be challenging. But in light of kind of how you approached it and the guidance you just gave, I think it can be helpful. And obviously, you're dealing with some, you know, extremely high level athletes, especially in the professional realm, which I do want to touch on later. But first, we were tasked with discussing the return to sport rates for cartilage surgery. Can you review for us the currently best available data on what the current rates of returning to sports are for each of the cartilage procedures and what factors may play a role in contributing to that successful return to sport. I'm hoping we could run through microfracture, oceallograft transplants, uh, autologous chondrocyte implant, and meniscus allograft. 
So the data, as I cited, you know, I gave a, a, thumbnail, a thumbnail in terms of what to expect in general when appropriately indicated with the caveat that the literature is a little bit difficult given all the um, independent variables when making a decision and calculating return to sport, for example, roster change, um, preference changes, a fear of getting re-injured, all of those things. So garnering information by return to sport and then reporting on it is is extremely, um, I, I would guess it's fraught with uh, uh, a number of uh, co-variables that can complicate the interpretation. That being said, we do better than 50% when a patient comes in and says, I might desire to get back to a high level, forget about being professional, just a high level. And I think we're in the neighborhood of about a 75% success rate. The problem is we have to ask our patients how we define success. Is it, yes, I got back to my sport, or have I achieved my goal of sufficient pain relief? So it's a bit tough. That being said, I will just tell you, historically, when I engage in a treatment recommendation, I'm you know, well better than 50% and maybe in the 75% range in general, but not always, depending on the, the intensity of the situation and getting someone back. But the rehab principles for each ease and the timelines do differ. And I think the important issue is how long does it take to feel better uh, such that they can get back to sport and the different procedures you mentioned have different timelines to, to, to feel better when the full uh, outcome of the procedure is needed to get them there. And then there's the early phase protection, which can differ across those procedures. So just you know, sort of running through them concisely, uh, arthroscopic debridement is a treatment for many patients, depending upon their symptomatology, relatively short-lived with mechanical symptoms, flaps that can actually be uh, intentionally debrided. Uh, those patients actually can feel better very quickly and can get back as soon as four to six weeks. Uh, the, the success rate or uh, probability depends upon the pathology presented. This is a solution that debridement that can be utilized when individuals have you know, shorter timelines to actually demonstrate performance, but it may not be as sustainable. But I've definitely, we've definitely seen instances, depending on the pathology, where it is sustainable, they can get back to everything for a prolonged period of time. Marrow stimulation, uh, microfracture but marrow stimulation, uh, with or without adjuncts such as articular cartilage uh, fragments like autocart or uh, scaffold, such as allogeneic cartilage, uh, uh, particular cartilage, things of that, like that nature, uh, have longer timelines because they have the early protection phase. Anytime you're stimulating the subcondyl bone, you're stimulating a fracture environment. So if they load it early, then that leads to subcondyl change, potentially osteophyte formation and defects and so forth. So you have to understand the biology well that early loading of the tibial thrombal joint after a marrow stimulation procedure with or without an adjunct can lead to unintended consequences. So we protect their weight bearing of the first six to eight weeks, uh, but we provide early motion. They don't even need bracing if it's tibial thermal, uh, maybe bracing if it's thermal. Uh, and the reason we have this early phase uh, protection uh, is because uh, we're trying to avoid the unintended consequences due to stimulating the subcondyl bone um, and changing the, the macrobiologic environment. One thing to understand is that all of these rehab protocols can be broken down into phases. Phase one is sort of the, the most protective phase, and each of them will differ. Osteochondral autographs, osteochondral allografts, I think, can tolerate earlier weight bearing because it's a structural unit. And for contained lesions that have uh, very solid uh, press fit plugs that identify the type of surgery, I think they can begin partial weight bearing almost immediately. Certainly, when they're standing uh, in one position, they can let their leg uh, uh, tolerate load. Uh, but when they motor from point A to point B, we generally, out of convenience, say, look, try to keep the most amount of weight off of it in the first four six day weeks. May see, in my mind, uh, uh, while uh, it can be a little more aggressive, I think, than people do, uh, we treat, tend to treat more like marrow stimulation in the early phases. 
And then the middle phases are basically increasing load, not uh, avoiding respecting the biology, avoiding overload uh, that can incite unintended consequences, again, in the subcranial bone, understanding the biology. Uh, marrow stimulation and MACI can take the longest to feel better. So even if the, you get out of the protection phase, but they feel well, they may not feel well enough, you'll see a tendency for them to progress and feel better month by month, even peaking um, in, the, in the neighborhood of 12 months. I tell some of these patients, based on our outcome studies, that might even take up to 18 months to get the full benefit. Um, but you're gradually getting them back, trying to re-athleticize them, if you will, uh, while protecting them at the same time. But timelines for uh, marrow stimulation and or MACI are somewhat similar and can be, you know, minimum in the 8 to 12 ra ra month range where you, where you allow very high uh, loads without um, concern. And again, it depends on the nature of the athlete. You know, some of these can get back very quickly because they don't have this a skill reorientation program that's required, but you're always trying to prevent re-injury versus others that have certain skills that take time to get back. And we sort of if, uh, impaired them, if you will, based on the rehab requirements. OA graphs, we know there's some data that shows that full-on revascularization can take up to eight months. So patellofemoral lesions, which I think are different loading situations that we allow around the six-month mark, but uh, medial femoral lesions, we typically say about the eight-month mark before we allow, allow high load. Remember that it depends on the sport when you say getting back. There are some sports that are not super high load or that can, can tolerate getting back earlier, but our general timeline is around eight months. Uh, and then finally for oats, that's one that I've seen that if you're fortunate enough to have a small lesion of limited diameter on uh, an otherwise uh, intact joint where there's no other kind of procedures performed guiding the rehab, uh, then osteochondral autographs are in the neighborhood sometimes of of uh, 16 weeks getting them fully back and uh, don't require as much early-term protection. So that sort of gives you a thumbnail. I think that the basic premise is a four-phase program to get them back. Uh, the timelines have the most restrictive uh, initiation of rehab, which is in the first six to eight weeks, it has to respect the biology to avoid unintended consequences. In the background of the concomitant procedures, which can also modify the rehab, and then the the full-on return not only depends on when you allow a athlete or high-level individual to do uh, impact ballistic training, things of that nature, based on the biology, but also how long it takes them to get their skills back or the term sort of re-athleticize so that they can competently play their sport again. Sure, I think that's a wonderful outline of the various protocols for the respective cartilage surgeries summarized very nicely. I was hoping we could shift gears here just a little bit. Everybody knows you've got quite a wealth of experience in team coverage, including professional baseball, basketball teams. I was hoping you'd share a little insight into those unique challenges you face over the years when handling the management of these athletes with injuries. Um, and you have to juggle the potentially competing goals from the patients, their agents, their coaches, even other sports medicine colleagues who may have alternative opinions. Without breaching any obvious patient confidentiality, do you have any good stories for us? You know, I can. Yeah, I got a lot of good stories. Um, well, I think they're good. I don't know how the listeners will feel, but I, I think that yeah, you you hit on a number of points that make it different. You can have the same problem, the same defect, but put it in an athlete when he or she is in a system. The management principles be, become very uh, expansive, and it's sort of this like. Yeah, multivariate analysis that you have to go through intellectually to help put together a treatment plan. I think that uh, so so it does add a lot of variables. Um, in 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 general, I think the the basic principles with, with an athlete are and and then the challenge you know a lot of people whispering in an in individual's ear saying 
you know, including uh, agents, including uh, ownership of teams or uh, athletic directors and uh, coaches and trainers, but also family members and agents and so forth. So you have to, one, always remember that these athletes are our patients. We have the same responsibility to them as we do our every other patient. There's really no difference, but you also have, you just have to be sensitized to all these different variables. I think with athletes, the, the first thing is to understand that we have to separate concern from disability. And what I mean by that is that they often, I had an athlete last week, he's a NBA prospect. He's a freshman at a division one school who has about 10 days worth of symptoms with a small area that delaminated. It was only about a dime size area off the level from a condyle, no real loose body symptoms, but effusions. And he has several weeks uh, before he has to get ready for training camp. So he is a predicted to be a first round draft pick um, already uh, highly scouted. So we're trying to figure out everything from, are you sufficiently symptomatic? If I told you that uh, you being active is not necessarily going to make this condition worse, does that help you with your decision-making? And uh, understanding what their timelines are, uh, because that helps you understand what to invoke and is it their primary treatment. So in this instance, just use it as a case example, I was perfectly prepared to do nothing, uh, knowing that there's a good chance the symptoms could come back because the swelling had already gone down, but understanding the consequences of becoming symptomatic in season and the impact on his uh, so-called asset value, there was a decision that weighed in favor of doing a simple arthroscopy and a debridement. So not only did it help with the timing of the decision-making for when he should treat, uh, or if he, uh, but it also helped us decide if he should treat at this time and see if his symptoms come back with um, reactivation of his activities. So I think that understanding uh, disability from concern and helping them understand that it's generally safe to uh, resume play as long as the symptoms are minimal or none, uh, to certainly, we wouldn't ever, we would rarely tell a player that, look, if you don't treat this, the defects will be worse and you're going to be in a different spot later on. So we, we that's one of the challenges I have to often disarm uh, the system by because they get other opinions that sometimes are different. That are, that's something I feel pretty strongly about. So because this is a ubiquitous concept, 40% of these guys, these individuals, I should say, uh, sort of play with known Carlos disease if they were to image them but have no symptoms, we're only in the business of treating the here and now. Um, and then the treatment chosen has to respect their available timeline. So that's part of the discussion. So if they have short timelines and they're trying to prove themselves, sometimes debridement is the thing we invoke. Marrow stimulation is a good or potentially a bad thing. There's this uh, a belief that sometimes marrow stimulation has a uh, less sustainable outcome profile. So when an athlete has demonstrated at least a year of being symptom-free and high-level performance, we know at least in the near term, we believe, that we can get some predictive uh, response, responsiveness from them. So when you're trying to assess risk with an organization or a school, we can say, look, this individual had this done a year ago, good chance they'll, they'll be able to, to endure a sustainable career or a college opportunity. But when you choose a treatment that is known to have a less sustainable outcome, you it becomes a less predictable conversation in that way. So marrow stimulation may be less good for that scenario. But if they have definitive anatomic reconstruction and have a year under their belt uh, with any of the other procedures, such as notes, uh, skinautograft, allograft, or Macy, um, and they get a good year, where we generally do pretty well in our predictive value in terms of keeping them uh, sustainably uh, with a good clinical outcome and uh, good performance. I, I find those those stories interesting personally, so thanks for sharing that with me. I think it's always interesting to see how you take care of patients in particular. Um, I did have the chance to visit with you and your team during the traveling fellowship, and it was very inspirational to see how much you juggle and, and how much you do for so many people. So thanks for sharing that with us. Thank you. It's kind of you to recognize and say.
What do you think is currently the most important unanswered question with respect to the topic of cartilage uh, rehab, returning to sport, following surgery? Or what do you see as the most important next step for advancement in this field? Uh, it's a tough one. Um, I, I think that a better understanding of the natural history of these areas of limited cartilage disease would be helpful. Um, I think would help guide our decision making and sort of get us all in the same place in terms of how we make decisions, because there there is a bit of variability uh, in, in opinions here. I think having a better understanding of uh, accelerated rehab protocols in terms of um, you know how much do we really have to expect the out of the gates biology, what can we do to accelerate these timelines, and it usually involves when is impact loading safe because the other things are I think often less relevant. I think that uh, a realistic understanding of how we can uh, boost uh, the healing environment in some way with the use of orthobiologics is still remains very interesting, and I think there's some areas to squeeze out additional incremental benefit from the use of the judicious use of orthobiologics. Uh, and I think that um, doing, I think we have to clean up our literature a bit in terms of um, how we report and what we rely upon in terms of return to sport rates. Um, because there's so many variables at play that that determine an athlete's successful return, and sometimes that has nothing to do with the disease we treated. And I think that's important for people to understand when they're educating their patients. The good news is that um, the one thing I can tell you in my gut is that once you get a good result, it is not as common as you would think that symptoms would come back, or the disease state would be reinitiated or made worse when they return back to high impact sports. I've been very very impressed at the longevity of the sustainability of an outcome when it's when the positive outcome is achieved and we release someone back the good news is i've been more sort of glass half full than not that we can continue with a successful return with minimal attrition if you will you know when they when the symptoms just come back that's been less common than i would have otherwise anticipated re-injury is less common than i would have otherwise re, uh, anticipated that is absolutely encouraging. Good to hear from somebody with so much uh, experience, research, but also anecdotal evidence. So, I agree that is encouraging. I think this is a good I, this is a good topic. I uh, I think people can use the ASMAR uh, article as a framework. Uh, there's a lot of ways to get cartilage repair right, if you will, uh, in active individuals, uh, and w there's no one procedure that fits all. Um, I think uh, the management of expectations and uh, judicious uh, adherence to the sort of the principles of both decision making as well as the technical aspects of these procedures is critical. But uh, much of this is ultimately in the hands of the individual postoperatively, and staying with them and helping them, under helping them understand the importance of that postoperative course, following them uh, and counseling them, uh, and the system they reside in is is, is equally important to the to the principles of getting them out of the gates. That's fantastic. Dr. Cole, I want to congratulate you again on this important work, uh, but also thank you for sharing your time and your thoughts with us today and for all you do for all of us surgeons out there trying to fight the good fight. Thank you, and I appreciate you having me on this episode. Dr. Cole's article titled Rehabilitation, Restrictions, and Return to Sport After Cartilage Procedures can be found in the January 2022 issue of the Arthroscopy Sports Medicine and Rehabilitation Journal, which is available online at www.arthroscopysportsmedicineandrehabilitation.org. This concludes this edition of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal.
Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time.